Let me pray for us before we open the word together. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us. Speak to us by your power, kind of power only your spirit can deliver. Shake us out of our doldrums, seize our minds and our hearts, even as we sit in this place or in the room across the hall or at home. May you be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. This is the holy, inerrant word of God. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So the grass withers and the flower fades. The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We all value different things, and we value things differently. If there was a child that walked into the sanctuary here this morning with their blanket in tow, and I went and I took that blanket and, and I put that blanket on the front pew here, you following afterward into this sanctuary, seeing that blanket on the front pew, would think very little of the blanket that was there. But that child, no doubt, would scream bloody murder in the pew, sitting right next to you until that blanket was back in those Cheerio-stained fingers of theirs. If there was a Michigan State jersey that was a basketball jersey, and I said it had been signed by the whole team, and I laid it on that front pew, and I said it's for whoever wants it, the first that can get to it, there would be 
a lot of you that would immediately bolt for the first pew. There are some of you that wouldn't budge. If I did it with the University of Michigan jersey, there would be some of you that would bolt for it. We would all judge you for doing so, but there are some of you that would, and others of us wouldn't. We value things differently. Some things are worth valuing more than others, and some are not worth valuing at all. Matthew wants us to see this this morning as he is walking us through these different people in this text. And what I want to do is look at each of the major figures in this text and look at what indeed they are valuing. The first, we'll look at Christ. The second, I want to look at these religious leaders. The third is Judas. And the fourth is this no-named woman. And I want you to see what they valued. And I want you to search your own heart, to search your own mind as we're walking through this. And thinking about what indeed you value. The first, let us notice that Christ values the glory of His Father. Christ values the glory of His Father. We enter this passage, chapter 26. Of course, these numbers were not here in the original writing of the Gospels. But it is quite an abrupt change from chapter 25 to chapter 26. In chapter 25, we've seen week after week as Jesus has been telling us about His return in glory upon the clouds and what will happen when He returns in His glory upon the clouds. And then we get to chapter 26, and at the very beginning of chapter 26, we've gone from talking about Christ's glory to now we're talking about His crucifixion. And it feels quite like quite a step down. We're talking about your glory and your return, Christ, and now... We begin talking about your crucifixion. There's a reason for that. Matthew has a reason for this. After he has been discussing the glory of Christ, he now is moving us into the Passion Week, this week in which Christ is crucified for His people. And at the very outset, he wants to make it clear that Christ's crucifixion is under God's sovereign providence. That this is not somehow distinct or somehow separated from His glory, but that these two things are tied together. And so when He begins this passion narrative in Matthew chapter 26, He wants there to be no confusion that Jesus is the Passover Lamb who willingly, willingly sacrifices Himself for sinners. He knows what this Passover week holds for Him. And yet, Jesus willingly enters into it. This shouldn't come as a surprise to you. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of Matthew. So at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, when the angel appears to Joseph and tells Joseph that there is a child that is conceived in Mary's womb and that he is still to pursue marriage with her, he says to Joseph this, this is from the Holy Spirit, she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The Son is born into this world with a purpose to save His people from their sins. And Jesus knows. He knows that the only way that He can save His people from their sins is for Him to be crucified. He has said this over and over in the Gospel of Matthew. 
He has warned his disciples, he's warned us in Matthew 16, 21, and Matthew 17, 22, and again in Matthew 20, 19. Jesus does not hide the fact that he's going to be betrayed. He doesn't hide the fact that he's going to be arrested. He doesn't hide the fact that he's going to be crucified. No, in fact, he highlights it. What is the motivation for his action of going to the cross? What's what he desires? And why is it that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, desires this? And the answer is because he desires to do his Father's will. He tells us in John 6.38 this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He will go so far in John 4.34 to say this. He says, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. This is His daily bread. This is what He feasts upon, doing the will of His Father. He will say in John 10.17.18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so Matthew wants you to know when we go into this gospel week, this passion week where Christ will be crucified, he wants you to know from the very beginning that despite everything that you're going to see, even what we see in the text today, what you're going to see in the weeks to come, that this is no surprise to Jesus. There was no hand that forced Christ into this. He was not crucified ultimately because of Judas. He was not crucified ultimately because of the priests. He was not crucified ultimately because of Pontius Pilate. He was crucified ultimately because it was the will of the Father. It was also not because we caused it in some way. It was never the cry of sinners crying out to him, save us, O God, from our sins. There was never such a cry because there was never such ability. We're trapped in our sin and darkness. Now the Son comes because it is the will of the Father. And the Father's will is also the will of the Son. There is only one will in the triune Godhead. And so even as the Father wills it, so the Son wills it. And He wills it because He delights in His Father. It's that psalm, Psalm 40, that foreshadows the words of the Son. Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Christ's actions are informed by the fact that he values his Father's glory above even life itself. And so he goes to the cross. Second, let us notice that the Jewish leaders value their own glory. Matthew tells us in verse 3, starting in verse 3, that the Jewish leaders plot in secrecy that they will 
arrest and that they will kill Jesus, even as Jesus is foretelling his death, they are plotting his death. And yet what we read is that the chief priests and the elders, they are hesitating in this plot that they have hatched to arrest and to kill Jesus. And why? Because Matthew tells us in verse 5, they feared the people. They have a plan, but they don't want to enact this plan yet. They want to wait until the Passover has passed. And so they want to wait at least nine days before they go and arrest this Jesus who claims to be the Messiah and the Christ. And the reason is because they fear the crowds. So the Passover is that great high feast of the Jewish nation of Israel. And so at this time when the Passover is occurring, you would have a swelling of the population in Jerusalem. It would multiply by five times what it was normally. And the people are in a national state of fervor. This is the high feast, and it celebrates God's deliverance of the nation from their enemies. And so there is great expectation and there's great hope, especially under the Roman Empire, that God is going to do this again. And always on their minds is, could this possibly be the week? We're in the holy city. And look at our crowds. And look at how we're worshiping God. Surely He will come now. And so these chief priests and these religious leaders, they are concerned about stoking these fires that the people might actually think Jesus is the Christ, or even worse, they might arrest and kill Him, and it might cause a kind of reaction against them because they arrested and killed Him. So they want to wait for at least nine more days. But if you look back up at verse 2, Jesus has already prophesied that in two days, when the Passover comes, He would be delivered over and He would be crucified. And so He was. It was in two days because He is sovereign over His death. This is according to His plan. It's according to His will. Why is it that the chief priests and the elders of the people began plotting to arrest and kill Jesus? What is the motivation for their action? Well, it is that they don't value Christ. They rather value their own glory. They see Christ as a thing. They see Him as as an obstacle to them. They see Him as someone that could steal their place of privilege. He could steal their honor. He could steal their authority. He could steal the trust that they believe the crowds have in them. And so they see Him as an enemy, as something that needs to be dealt with. And that calls for action. They value their own glory and it informs their own actions. Third, notice Judas's lack of valuing Christ and how that informs his actions. Judas's lack of valuing Christ and how that informs his actions. We have this unnamed woman who anoints Jesus. She takes this alabaster jar, it would have been a jar with a, a skinny bottleneck on it, and she takes that alabaster jar, which 
would have been sealed in that way and is filled with costly ointment and she would have had to break that little thin kind of neck to the bottle and after she breaks it then she pours out this ointment upon the head of Jesus as he is reclining at the table. And as she does so, it anoints Jesus. There's some discussion about this event, which we see similar accounts of in Mark, and we see it in Luke, and we see it in the Gospel of John. All four Gospels have some account like this. But what is problematic is that there is enough different details in these accounts that it's hard to figure out how is it that they go together. And so there is great amount of debate about this. I, for one, understand that we're really talking about two different anointings here. I think what we see is, is that in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is recording that there is the house of a Pharisee in Galilean territory where there is a man, a woman who was a sinner that anoints Jesus. And I think that is Luke's account, whereas Matthew, Mark, and John are detailing this account of a woman in the house of Simon the leper who is anointing Jesus. And John will tell us that the woman in this passage is Mary. Matthew doesn't give that detail, Mark doesn't give that detail, but John does. Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. And so Mary takes this alabaster jar and she breaks off the neck and she pours this costly ointment upon the head of Jesus as he reclines at this table. And it would have been a very expensive perfumed ointment. In John 12, we're told this ointment was worth 300 denarii. That was about a year's salary for a day laborer at this time. And so this was not something to shrug off. In fact, the disciples, when they see it, were told in verse 8 that they become indignant. They're angry because they see this as an incredible waste. Mark in his gospel says that some present had this reaction. John tells us that the person who had this reaction is Judas Iscariot. And so what appears to be happening is that in this scene, you have Mary pouring out this expensive ointment worth a whole year's salary for a day labor upon the head of Jesus. And all of the disciples, in some manner or another, have this internal indignation that's occurring, anger. But it's Judas who is the loudest, or maybe is the one who speaks. And he's angry because of what he values and doesn't value. He says, would this not have been spent better upon the poor? He's angry. Matthew tells us in verse 10 that Jesus was, quote, aware of their reaction. He knows the hearts of men, and he always knew the heart of Judas. As John tells us in John 2, he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in a man. Judas's betrayal is no surprise, just as these religious leaders' betrayal is no surprise. Judas valued money, not Christ. And he saw it as a waste to anoint Christ with this pricey ointment. But it wasn't because it was, as he claimed, have been of some kind of benefit to the poor. It could be sold and be given to the poor. We know that because in John's Gospel, John tells us that Judas was 
was in control of the money bag, that all the money that especially these widows gave to Jesus and his disciples for their ministry, it was Judas that kept this money bag. He was the first treasurer of the church. And John tells us that he would take money out of this money bag for himself. He was a corrupt treasurer. And so he's angry because it's stealing money from him. It's a good gauge for you and I that what we become most angry about shows us what we value the most. And too often we do it under this veneer of a kind of super spirituality. I'm angry about this thing because of this spiritual thing when in reality we're just painting that on as a veneer to hide our sin. Of course, there's a righteous anger. We probably seldom exert righteous anger. Judas is driven by his anger and he marches off to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He's going to get his own. He lost out on that. He's going to get his own. 30 pieces of silver is a much smaller amount. It would have been about five months of wages for a day labor. It is a figure that is used in the Old Testament law when a man's ox would gore a slave and kill that slave. Then the owner of that ox was to pay 30 pieces of silver to the slave owner. In Zechariah 11, we read of how a faithful shepherd purchases Israel from wicked shepherds for 30 pieces of silver. This is the price for a slave's life, and that's all Judas considered Jesus' life of worth. This is worth the amount of a slave. Now, here's what's hard, right? Try and wrap your mind around this. You say, all that he experienced, all that Judas saw, he he saw Jesus do miracle after miracle. He saw bread multiplied. He saw fish multiplied. He saw a bleeding woman healed. He saw the dead raised back to life. He had all those experiences. Or you think about these religious leaders and you think the incredible amount of knowledge they had. I have no qualms in saying that those religious leaders, when we're talking about these chief priests and these Pharisees, there is not a person in this room who knows the Old Testament Scriptures better than they did. They had knowledge. And we often think, if only I experienced what people experienced in that first century, if I had seen what Jesus did, or if I would heard what Jesus preached, I would have believed. Or I would have more affection for Him, or I would desire Him more, or I would serve Him more readily. Or we think, if only I had greater knowledge and greater understanding, then I would actually believe and be of more service. And what we see is that experience is not the way. That is example A here is Judas. If we only had more knowledge, that would do the trick. Well, example A here are the elders and the chief priests. As has been said, outward privileges don't make the Christian. They don't make the Christian. 
And what we see reflected is Mary is different. Mary is different. And that's where I want us to camp out. Mary rightly values Christ. She pours out this ointment upon his head, what Judas calls a waste. I love what Jesus says in verse 10. He calls it something that is beautiful. Mary rightly values Christ. Jesus prophesies that the poor you will always have with you, but you see Mary, she has anointed my body for burial. Again, Jesus is not hiding the fact. He knows that he's going to be crucified. He knows that he's going to be buried. And he is relishing in the fact that Mary, in some sense, is valuing his very person and she is anointing him with oil. Mary's giving all to him who would give all. And so Jesus calls it beautiful. This isn't a strange action for Mary. She seems to understand the value of Christ throughout the Gospels. As we look at her, you remember that scene after the resurrection of Lazarus. She is in the home with Martha and the disciples, and Jesus are there. And you'll remember that Martha was busy in the kitchen preparing a meal while Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. And Martha was working, and Mary was delighting. She was delighting in her Savior. Luke tells us in chapter 10 of his gospel that Martha was, quote, distracted with much serving, but not Mary. Quote, she sat at the Lord's feet and she listened to his teaching. There's a rightness about her action. There's a singular, motivated focus upon Christ and a delight in the person of Christ. She adores Him, and that shapes all that she does. And so He calls it beautiful. What was Martha missing that Mary wasn't? What were the chief priests and Judas missing that Mary wasn't in her passage? And Martha was busy about things instead of the person. She was doing, but she was missing the delighting. The religious leaders in Judas are clearly missing the delighting. When you know the value of Christ, delighting in His person trumps everything else. And that's why Jesus says in the Martha passage that Mary had, quote, chosen the good portion. She does it here again. She chooses the good portion, the person of Jesus. She adores Him. Three questions for each of us this morning. First, do you rightly value the person Do you rightly value the person of Christ? Too often I fear that when we're thinking about this, we're just just a degree off. Just a degree off. We see that in Martha's service. The service is right. 
But the singular focus upon Christ that Mary has is writer still. You see it in the disciples' concern here. Care for the poor is right, but delighting in Jesus is writer still. Whether we're thinking about the religious leaders here, or the disciples, or Judas, or Martha, there is quite a bit in common. It's just simply different degrees. Each doesn't seem to understand that Jesus isn't just another thing. Do you rightfully value Jesus? I was reading a theologian this week who was thinking about similar lines along these lines, and he made this comment. He said that we too often simply see and present Jesus as a solution to a problem. And that's true. That can be just, it's just one degree off. He's a solution to a problem. There's a marked difference between delighting in justification and delighting in Christ crucified for the ungodly. It's just one degree difference. But there's a world of difference. Because justification is a thing, it's a doctrine. Christ is a person. As the theologian said, we often see Jesus Christ as a solution to a puzzle, but He is not the solution to a puzzle. He's not. He is the divine Son of God. He is someone, not something. And He's not just someone. He is the greatest one. And Mary, she, she rightfully sees this. Yes, He will be crucified. He will be crucified and she is preparing Him for this. This is the core of our faith. But the center is God. God in the three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, He is not a thing. He is not to be valued along with all other things or in comparison to all other things. He is in a class all by Himself. And Mary rightfully comprehends this to some degree. Do you rightly, rightly delight in Christ? The person of Christ. I listen to Christian conversations, even my own. I listen to teaching or listen to preaching that happens in our pulpits. And too often I think to myself, I think they buried the lead. They buried the lead. That's what a journalist would say. Newspaper man. They became obsessed with the details surrounding it. Martha, you are distracted by your serving. Disciples, you are distracted with the poor. Bad things, no. But Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Do you and I rightly value the person of Christ? See, everything else flows from that. Great, have 
love for the doctrine of justification. You should. It flows from this. Great, you have concern for the poor. You should. It rightfully flows from this. That you delight in the person of the Son. Do you and I rightly value the person of Christ? When we rightly value the person of Christ, we will love to pray. Because you love to talk with Him. You love to speak with Him. To get alone with Him. When we rightly value the person of Christ, we will love His Word. We'll be able to say, when we read the psalmist say that it is sweeter to Him than honeycomb, we know what He's talking about. You long to be here on Sunday mornings because you know that you're going to hear from Christ. You try to come back Sunday evenings because you long to hear from Christ. You can't get enough hearing from Christ. When we rightly value Christ, we hate sin and we fight against it. Judas did not because he didn't rightly value Christ. We've seen this again, another kind of run of these men and women in our circles where you, these people that have great knowledge and they have a great platform and we have often looked up to them as mentors and heroes of the faith. And then all of a sudden it comes crashing down. They deny the faith or they commit some heinous sin or you realize they've been living as a hypocrite for all these years. And you go, how can that ever be? How did they get there? Or in a room of this size, there will be some of you that claim the name of Christ today and in the months and the years ahead, you will wander and you will deny Him. And the question is, how could that ever be? And it's here. There wasn't delighting in Christ. It wasn't reveling in the person of Christ. It wasn't just loving Christ. That's how it happens. When we rightly value Christ, we long to see His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you labor for it? Do you give to it? Do you strive for it? That leads to our second question this morning. Are you willing to spend and be spent in His blessed service? Mary was. Those who rightly value the person of Christ are motivated to serve Christ, to be spent in His blessed service. I absolutely love that when Jesus speaks here to Mary, He says to her that as the gospel is proclaimed, so He's talking about service, going out, the gospel will be proclaimed in all the earth. He says that as it is going out and this gospel is proclaimed in all the earth, so there will be given a report of Mary and what she has done. As the gospel goes out, so this report of Mary goes out. And the question is why? 
Out of all the people in the life of Christ in the Gospels that did things for Christ, out of all the people that we see in the Gospels, why is it that what Mary did is the one thing that it said, when the Gospel goes out to the ends of the earth, to the four corners of the globe, this will always be reported. And by the way, that prophecy is being heard in your presence this morning. Being fulfilled. Why her? It's because she rightly valued. She rightly valued Christ. And from that, action of serving Christ flowed from her. We're children of a father. We're servants of a king. We're the bride of a bridegroom. Temples of the Spirit. We know communion with the Father, person of the Father, through the person of the Son, by the person of the Holy Spirit, this one personal God, and we delight in His person. And He is worth spending and being spent for. Do you remember when Jesus is on that beach, the resurrected Jesus with Peter at the end of the Gospel of John? Remember he asked him that threefold question. He would ask him the same question three times. He would say, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And then after Peter has answered three times in his own way each time, yes, Lord, you know that I love you then, flowing from that, then flowing from that. Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. When the Apostle Paul speaks about his life, he doesn't say, for to me to live is preaching, for to me to live is ministry, for to me to live is being a father or a husband. No, he says, for to me to live is Christ. It's the person. And then all of these good things flow from it. Christ is the Alpha. Christ is the Omega. It begins with Him and ends with Him. And all the service flows from delight in Him. We can be so busy about the doing that we miss the one we are doing it for or should be doing it for. We can be so busy with even the good things of ministry that we fall more in love with the ministry than we do with our Savior. Am I, am I delighting in the person of Christ? Am I? Mary was, finally, as you value Christ and are motivated in service to Him, you give or you will give for the glory of Christ. Are you giving for the glory of Christ? This woman We've been calling her Mary. Matthew doesn't give her a name in the text. I think it's purposeful. He doesn't give her a title. He doesn't give her a name. And I think he doesn't tell us because it's not Mary that's to be glorified here. It's Christ. It's her act, but it's her act giving glory to the person of Christ. 
When I was young, my family, we took a trip to Washington, D.C., and I remember going to Arlington National Cemetery, and the first stop in the cemetery was to go to JFK's graveside, and there you have this torch that is lit, this flaming fire, and you have his name that is chiseled upon the stone there, and I remember looking at that, and then I remember us wandering through Arlington Cemetery where you just have row after row after row after row as far as the eye can see of white cross after white cross after white cross. And I remember walking up and down these rows. And on each of these crosses, you will have the name of the man, the service man or the service woman, and then you will have their rank, and then you will have their field of service on everyone. But the most inspiring... I think, at least, the most striking place for me was in Arlington Cemetery when you go to the tomb of the unknown soldier. And there you have three soldiers that are buried. And there's no name, there's no title. There's nothing there but that tomb. And what happens when you walk away from a grave like that? You think about the service rendered, of course. You think about what they fought for, of course, but what you think about is what it was all aimed at. The glory of the nation that they served. You don't think about the man. You think about the bigger thing. Her service to the person of Christ points to His glory, not her own. Do you rightly value Christ? When you rightly value Christ, you will pour out your life for Him. But in pouring out your life for Him, you're always doing so for His glory. Because you rightly value Him. Do you delight in Christ? Oh, if there's one thing that I could stir you with, it would be that beyond anything else. Now, this is what I know. I know that some of you sit here this morning and you think, ah, yeah, don't find delight in Christ. Well, then you pray for it. You ask, Lord Jesus, you reveal yourself to me that I might see your beauty. There are others of you that sit here this morning and say, there have been times that I've delighted in him more. I don't, I don't feel like that now. I, I feel like the church of Laodicea. I feel like I'm lukewarm. And you know you're on dangerous ground because it's dangerous ground. And so you cry out to him. He hears the cries of his people. He is the great intercessor of his people. And like that man of the daughter who said, I believe, help me in my unbelief. You say, Lord Jesus, I delight in you, but help me in my lack of delight. Grow it in me. To where I value you above everything. When my mind wanders and it's looking for something to contemplate, it finds its greatest resting place thinking upon you. That when I have a free moment, I find myself running to you. That when I am serving, I'm thinking less and less about what other people are thinking of my service, but I'm thinking about how to point them to you. 
That the best thought I have every day is the moment that I'm thinking upon you. That when I am in worship, these are not dead words to me. When I sing them, they fill my heart with joy because I delight in you. That when I pray, I find there is nowhere I would rather be in all the world than upon my knees because I delight in being with you. He answers prayers like that. Do you delight in Christ? Do you rightly value Him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if we were all to answer that question, we have to confess the answer is no. Our hearts are not where we desire them to be, and they are not where they should be. Would you give us greater glimpses of your beauty that we might see with the kind of clarity that Mary saw you with? That though those around may mock and say our time is wasted, the expenditures are wasted, the devotion is wasted, that we would hear you constantly in the back of our minds saying this is a beautiful thing because they are delighting in me. May you become sweeter to our taste. May sin become more offensive. May your glory be more our aim. May we be able to say with the Apostle Paul that we are presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to you, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we are seeking to do to your glory because we delight in you. We pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen.